So I joined the Digital Verification Corps, otherwise known as DVC, here at Cambridge in October, and I was hoping to explore some of the practical applications of what I was studying. Following two days of training, I slowly learned how to verify an image or a video that was found on the internet. So in other words, I was taking a digital product, like a picture, and asking myself, where and when did this happen? What's going on in this picture? And is it even real at all? Our first project as a team was mapping the airstrikes in Raqqa, in Syria. So we got a picture of an explosion and we had to use satellite imagery from uh, Google Earth uh, to find the exact location and the coordinates for that picture. And in the first, first couple of weeks, it was very difficult. Uh, all the streets and explosions and buildings and mosques looked exactly the same. Um, but a few weeks in, I managed to find, find the exact location for one of the explosions. So fast forward a week later, I'm on my weekly Skype with Sam to check in on our team's progress. And Sam makes his computer screen available to or visible to Christina and I and shows us the report that he's working on. And right there in the middle of the map, marked with a huge number 22, is the airstrike that I located. And that was a very big moment for me. Wow, that's really interesting. But why was that important to you? And why did it matter so much that this potential piece of evidence had made its way to the report? Because I've been reading those reports for years. And they're a huge source of information for human rights students and practitioners worldwide. We use them to gather evidence, to produce research, to help shape policy in a very tangible way. Parliamentarians cite Amnesty International reports regularly, and this kind of work is how we know with certainty that something happened, and it's the first step towards denouncing and reacting to human rights abuses. So being part of that knowledge production process felt extremely powerful. So just to recap, the DVC is... So the Digital Verification Corps is an initiative set up by Amnesty International in 2016 to engage volunteers worldwide who are based at universities to work with Amnesty to source and discover and verify uh, content online on social media of human rights abuses and to make sure that if Amnesty uses those in its research reports that it is actually what it says it is, that these are the events in the place and the time and the people uh, that we are told it is. So we can actually use that as evidence of, of human rights abuses. Hi, my name is Orly Skrobik. I'm currently pursuing my MPhil in international relations at the University of Cambridge. And I'm Matt Mamoudi, and I'm studying for a PhD in development studies here at the University of Cambridge currently returning from a bit of fieldwork away, so I'm excited to be here on the episode today. We're hosting Sam Dubberly, Senior Advisor to the Crisis Response Team at Amnesty International and Manager of the Digital Verification Corps. We'll be talking about using technology and human rights work both outside the field and inside the field. We'll also grapple with what it means to be fact finders on the internet, a space that is often credited for its democratic affordances, but which is subject to quite serious asymmetries. Being able to speak up and being heard are not the same thing. Thank you so much for joining us, Sam. We're so excited to have you. It's great to be here. This is Declarations. I'm Sam Doubly. I've worked for Amnesty International for the last two and a half years. Um, and before that, I worked in uh, television broadcast news and was 
super interested in the the use of open source information as we now call it or user generated content through in particular the arab spring but before that already the protests in iran in 2009 following the elections there and how they could be used in in news output and then over time, I got very interested in how that can be used in human rights, human rights research. Um, so I've been working with Amnesty, as I said, from, since 2016, um, brought on to build what is now called the Digital Verification Core, which is a network of six universities around the world, University of Cambridge and the University of Essex in the UK, uh, UC Berkeley in the United States, University of Toronto in Canada, uh, the Univers University of Pretoria in South Africa, and Hong Kong University. Um, I'm a Brit who is uh, based in Berlin, um, so it's really nice to be in Cambridge, where I was an undergraduate. Uh, Sam, do you want to tell us about your life, what it's like to live as Sam Dubberly at Amnesty International? <laughs> <laughs> I think one of the interesting things of, of, of Amnesty is it's, it's very hard to give a, a day in the life because um, each day is, is very, very different. Um, because of the program I manage and being based in Central Europe, um, I'm responsible for relationships with six different universities, which are based across 14 different time zones. So I often end up having calls with colleagues in Berkeley at five in the morning in Germany or 10 at night in, in Germany to accommodate their time zones and, and fit in the day um, um, in between that. I'm, I'm quite, I feel very lucky uh, in my work at Amnesty because it is phenomenally varied and I get to work with a whole range of amazing students who are interested in human rights, who are interested in, new, in technologies and interested in how those technologies can apply to human rights. And I feel that we're, we're in the third year of the DVC program, we're really having an impact in one, teaching the students new skills and skills which are really relevant today, you know, how do you discern uh, if a piece of content, if a video or a photograph really is what we're, we're told it is, you know, I think that they're really key skills that need to be taught fundamentally at universities, if not even earlier, I think our media literacy in education is, is quite weak. So I feel that we're making a contribution to improving that um, in some ways. So that's really amazing. But also the, the work at, at Amnesty obviously is, is we're somewhat beholden to what's going on in the world, but it allows you to feel connected to what's going on in the world. And it allows us to feel, allows me to feel at the very least that, that I'm making a contribution, however small that contribution is, or however futile sometimes that contribution feels, but at least I'm making a contribution to try and stop some of the worst things that are happening in the world. So as I'm based on the crisis response team, we're, I think we're very fortunate in the, for me at least, you know, we're, we're, our role is very varied. We're not just looking at, you know, one country or one issue. We're really changing our, our, our focal point on a daily, weekly basis, which for me is also very interesting. And the crisis response team, I think, is in a position within Amnesty to do some really interesting work. So mm. it's hard to say what a day in the life of Sam mm. looks like, but um, um, it, it's a, a day in the life of Sam is certainly one where I feel very lucky to interact with lots of amazing people and really try and, you know, contribute to, to the situation of human rights around mm -hmm. the world. And your job may not have existed 15, 20 years ago. So how do you think the field of human rights has changed with digital verification and what things can we do now that we couldn't have done before without it? No way would my job have existed 15 years ago. I think 15 years ago, you know, if you look at, if you look at recordings from the 
ICTY, the Tribunal for, for the Ex-Yugoslavia. Ex Pieces of evidence were being submitted there, which were news reports from Reuters or news reports from the BBC, and they were filmed by professional camera people, professional journalists who went out into the field and recorded things. Even when I started out my career in television news in 2002, 2003, during the Second Iraq War, it was the same thing. You know, the story was being told by professional journalists on one side embedded with coalition forces, on the other side, the state broadcaster, the state radio. Uh, and that was how we had access to the stories of what was going on. And fast forward to 2009 in Iran or 2010 in Tunisia, 2011 in Egypt, etc. Um, the way those stories were told changed massively. And it took, I think, certainly it took the journalism world a, a, a while to wake up to that. I remember kind of collectively, you know, across different news organizations asking ourselves, what do we do with all this content that's there on YouTube? Mm -hmm. Can we use it? Can we... Who does it belong to? How do we know it really what it, it is really what it is? Mm -hmm. And I think for a long period, we we news organizations collectively forgot what verification was. Mm. Um, and, and verification isn't necessarily something new. You know, if you look at the assassination of Kennedy, that was filmed by by somebody with a camera who happened to be in, in, in Dallas mm -hmm. uh, filming that, right? So mm -hmm. it's not necessarily something new. Um, what what has been very new is the volume and the scale mm -hmm. of content that's now available. You know, I don't even know how many minutes, um, it, how many hours of, of video footage are uploaded to YouTube a minute. I think last mm -hmm. time I checked, we we're at 500. I'm sure it's more than that. Mm -hmm. But 500 hours a minute uploaded to YouTube means, you know, going through the conflict in Syria to give the you know most most usual example. You know, the amount of videos have filmed the conflict in Syria since 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 it started eight years ago to the protests since the start of the year in, in Sudan. Mm. The volume of that is, is incredible, and that's where verification comes in. It's, it's how can we use this content at scale? Uh, and, and that's really changed everything, and that's why I think human rights organizations really need to understand how they can use this content that's online, the videos and photos that are put online, and, and how they can't use it as well. And that's obviously something that often gets forgotten. You know, there's yeah. often a rush to say, oh, my God, this video shows X, Y, or Z. And we're so appalled by what X, Y, or Z is that we rush to use it when, you know, a little bit of a little bit, a deep breath mm -hmm. and a little bit of forethought before hitting retweet or posting on Facebook would be would be very welcome. Because mm -hmm. I, I often say, you know, an organization like Amnesty or Human Rights Watch or anybody, any human rights organization or humanitarian organization, all we have is our reputation. It's you know it's our biggest source of capital. So mm -hmm. you know putting out information that's that's wrong in some way or we misre misrepresent in some way is is you know a huge risk a huge risk to that reputation and a huge risk to that capital that we have. Building on that as well, I was sort of thinking when you were talking about um, those Alan Curdy moments and how difficult it is to sustain that kind of momentum. Yeah. Syria has been going on and continued going on before and after that picture was mm -hmm. released, but that picture forms a central part of the Syrian story in totally. the Western world. Mm -hmm. And so how, as a professional, you go about navigating that space and using that momentum without exploiting it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah. I find that kind of yeah. reflection interesting. When it comes to, to verification, you know, I think I heartily welcome the fact that you know, news organizations now definitely understand the need to have in-house social media verifiers 
you know, who are, who are trained in discovering content, who are trained in sourcing content. And one of the big challenges has always been, I think it's one of the challenges we have at Amnesty with, with fewer resources than, you know, the New York Times or the BBC or any of the mainstream big news organizations, far fewer resources, is once you've verified that content, what do you do with it? And I think what the New York Times Visual Investigation Lab has, has managed to achieve in the short time that that's been operational is, is pretty amazing how, you know, they're taking visual content, photographs, videos, etc., and really doing an in-depth exploration of the event that happened and opening and and opening a lot of questions but also raising a lot of questions as well and saying you know we we are not sure about this mm. because that's one of the big challenges it's as you say the viral virality of things means what we know and equally what we don't know gets kind of lost in a kind of haze um of virality and and mm. you know people sharing things online without spending five minutes to think about it or for sure five seconds to think about it um so i think doing that and using the visual content i hope would not only serve to educate people about what's happened but also serves to educate people about the importance of verification mm -hmm. and the importance of thinking before you're sharing when the bbc put out the bbc did a, a forensic investigation into a video that came out of cameroon in the summer of 2018 and seeing how that video in and of itself, the BBC investigation into the video in and of itself became viral, gave me a lot of hope, right? Because I think a lot of people are sitting there, a lot of the, our audiences are sitting there going, okay, I wish I wish I knew how to think about these things. Sure. And putting out videos like that, even though they're a bit longer, even though um, they take more time to sit down and consume, I think really helps audiences learn and increases media literacy mm -hmm. I mean, step by step, drop by drop, because that's in this in this fake news environment. That's that's so key. That's so so key because you know the narratives do get overtaken by events. So you know you mentioned already the the picture of Alan Kurdi, the the little Syrian boy who was found on a beach in Turkey, uh, drowned, and how th that virality was like. Oh my God, what's happening? um to us who are we as humans and i think it invited certainly those in the west more to ask about questions not about the syrian conflict but how we were approaching refugees mm. right this guy was just this little kid and his family were just trying to get across mm -hmm. to greece they were, they got out of syria they could have stayed in turkey but they wanted a better life mm. and that's what happened so i think it invited not necessarily questions about the syrian conflict but, uh, like uh, invited internal introspection into how we dealt with the refugee crisis as, as you know as western europe mm. but as you said it didn't do much really it didn't mm -hmm. it, just, it was something that people were shocked about and then moved on and that's actually one of the goals of the dvc is you know how do we move beyond people looking at something online reposting on facebook or on instagram or wherever and saying oh this is awful who are we what have we done as a world you know uh, move on to the next let's put my older my flat white and, mm. and grab my coffee and, and move on with my day but i've i've done something to show how wrong this is mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and with the dvc what we wanted to do as amnesty was move beyond you know clicktivism so mm -hmm. you know we become activists by clicking online mm -hmm. and actually how do we have people engage with human rights work in a in a meaningful way where they learn skills and and contribute to the work of amnesty while then and one of Amnesty's visions is certainly with the DVC is that, you know, the people who graduate in the inverted commas from the DVC go and work for 
the UN, go and work for grassroots human rights organizations, wherever they're from, Latin America, Central Europe, wherever, it doesn't really matter, but then take those skills with them and we can kind of help seed more verification skills across the human rights movement mm. because, you know, we don't have the resources, the movement as a whole doesn't have the resources of a BBC or a New York Times. So if we can have people who are going in at the at the bottom rungs of the ladder of those organizations understand mm. verification mm. and think how their organizations can, can improve their use of social media content and... Uh, I think that's something, a really valuable contribution of Amnesty to the human rights space through the DVC. You mentioned that when we were looking at the picture of Alan Kurdi, we saw the refugee crisis and not the war in Syria. Do you think that says something about the way we consume that kind of information, that we're not looking at the narrative as a whole, but that we are compartmentalizing that kind of information into labels or boxes like refugee crisis? Absolutely. I think you're totally right. I think if we if we think about Alan Kurdi as a as a viral image, you know, there's no human rights abuse necessarily in that image, right? Except with you know how the West treats refugees, for instance, potentially. Um, but there's no obvious human rights abuse. You know, Amnesty. I wasn't at Amnesty at the time, but my, my guess would be Amnesty didn't probably didn't use that image. But you know, I think it's it's easy for us. You know, it's easy for people to get out, outraged of the picture of a young child where it's a lot harder for us to get outraged at images of you know of adults mm. in the same situation you know had that picture been of a of a 42 year old syrian man mm -hmm. rather than a three-year-old syrian boy i think you know we would have just carried on with mm. our lives and not got so outraged by this mm -hmm. um so you know that comp compartmentalization of <laughs> of event global events um, is certainly something that we try and, and fight against as Amnesty, but it's very, very hard, of course. Mm -hmm. You know, how do we p make that chain between the conflict in Syria to that guy, the, the, the family of Alan Kurdi crossing into Turkey and where they were in Turkey to then how did they get to Bodrum and why did they get on a boat of people smugglers to try and go to Greece that was over overburdened, overloaded, and how did that, that boat then capsize so that, you know, Alan Kurdi was drowned? How did all those things happen? We don't really think about, right? We don't mm. think about that chain. Mm. Mm. So certainly, in, you know, going back to Amnesty's use of, of open source information, we do try and give a more holistic picture of what's going on when we're using it to try and explain a situation, try and explain all the different cogs in that machine as they're, as they're whirring and how does one, the movement of one cog lead to another cog moving, etc. Mm. which is a very, very hard thing to do in a very, very noisy media, media mm. environment, right? Mm. So we're always also not thinking about finding the content and verifying the content, but also a bit like the New York Times, you know, how do we then expose that com content? How do we publish it in a way that is engaging? How do, how, is the, how do we publish in a way that people get outraged? And how do we publish in a way that then ultimately drive, drives people to action? Mm -hmm. uh, and that's what we want at the end of the day, because, you know, if we're, if we're fighting towards Amnesty's mission that... You know, all of the rights enshrined in the Universal Declaration of Human Rights are respected around the world. The only way we can get that is, is people actually acting. So speaking of connections and connecting data to action, I want to take it back a little bit to basics. And I was wondering if you could just walk us through a typical example of a case coming through and us needing to find uh, footage and, and images from that stage of discovery and through to the stage of verification and how that occurs. So I think a good example of, of how the process happens 
is if we take, for instance, the protests that have been happening this year in, in Sudan uh, against Bashir's regime. So what we see in an event like that is obviously, you know, Amnesty, we have a Sudan researcher who's not based in Sudan. It's, it's too dangerous. So we have a Sudan be- researcher who's based in, in Nairobi, in our regional office in Nairobi. So our Sudan researcher, of course, has a network of contacts who informs them as to what's going on in Sudan. But we're also responding to, you know, news reports of, of events. You know, it's, it's a very normal way for us to respond. You know, we look at the news wires like any other organization and, and see what's going on. So when... Uh, the first reports of the protests in Sudan started emerging, emerging at the start of the year. You know, we, um, our, our Sudan researcher, but also the rest of the team, um, obviously are very concerned about what's going on there, especially um, the right of, of peaceful protest, the right to peaceful protest. And what we saw very quickly um, in the protests in Sudan, that they, they were being suppressed violently. Mm-hmm. There was a violent suppression of the right to protests in Sudan and that is something that as Amnesty we we need to speak up about we need to um, we need to react to as quickly as we can Um, so we start looking on social media in an an initial instance on Twitter uh, because Twitter is the most open of the platforms it's where journalists comment the most it's where human rights defenders comment the most it's not where you'll find original content necessarily the, the first posting of a video or of a photograph, but it's where you find the lead to that original content. So the first thing we do is set up a, a Twitter list about people of people who are tweeting about what's going on in Sudan, and then we'll start collecting the information. Uh, and what we're looking for is you know anything that illustrates the media reports uh, or the uh, first-hand reports that our researcher was getting, saying you know there is violence, they're using live ammunition, they're using tear gas illegally. Uh, there's beatings of protesters, there's um, arrests of protesters, un- un- unwarranted arrests of protesters, etc. So we're looking for evidence of that. So one of the major major incidents we saw was the security forces firing tear gas into a hospital mm-hmm. where wounded protesters had gone after they'd been beaten by the police or hit by rubber bullets or even live ammunition. Um, they'd gone into, gone into a hospital and the, and the hospital was then tear gas. So we found videos posted from hospital workers online and we said about verifying them and what we had to do was to make sure number one they were from the day in question uh they were from at the very least at a very minimum january 2019 Mm -hmm. and we had to make sure that they were actually filmed in the hospital Mm -hmm. that we were told they were filmed in again going back to the the argument of fake news what we find is you know even when amnesty is is right in what it says we're accused of fake news so what happens when we put out something that that is wrong. Sure. You know, that, that accusation is, is, is number one founded and therefore is only going to get stronger. Right. So we, got, we set about using different techniques to verify that content, to make sure that content is when and where we were told it is. And so that's looking at all sorts of techniques, like looking at shadows, uh, what shadows are cast by people. Has this, has these vid- have these videos appeared anywhere else online? That's mm-hmm. something we see very often that, there'll be a protest in Kinshasa or wherever, and we'll find videos and images 
purporting to be from that protest, but they're actually from they're from Kinshasa, but they're two years old, or they're from a different city completely, etc. So that's one of the most important things we have to do. Mm-hmm. And then we set around set around what we call geolocation, which is what you talked about at the start early from from Raqqa, uh, of basically looking at all the features of a video, all the visual evidence that's contained in a video, and matching that to satellite imagery to make sure that we know exactly know to the street corner where these where this happened because mm-hmm. if somebody challenges the content we put out be either in our reports or in our advocacy we need to be able to roll out the fact and say no nope, you're wrong it was exactly on the street corner mm-hmm. or at, at exactly this time we can even go that far sometimes right right and just to emphasize again the level of detail here you use shadows to establish and and weather data right to establish the time Precisely. If the conditions in the video or the photo are right, the weather is right, it's a sunny day, you can find any feature in the, in the video, in the piece of content, which casts cast a shadow, which will then, if you know where it happened, allow you to match the position of the sun at that time and that date to the shadows to basically act as a sundial. Uh, so a human being or a lamppost or a, or a minaret these, these can all act as basically as sundials, allowing us to work out exactly what time something was filmed. That's fascinating. And often those are the elements that will determine whether or not you actually go through with, sub- or for us at least, whether we go through with submitting it to you. Because there's so many instances where we really want it to be that street corner, or we really want it to be that area, and it doesn't end up being. And you have to go back and check against yourself and your own impulses to get it over with and finish scouring Google Earth or Google Maps. Um, so yeah, it's, it's, it's a very interesting process. Yeah, I mean, I totally agree with you, right? I mean, we're all programmed to be lazy. <laughs> and this process isn't a quick process. Mm. You know, it can take hours and hours. And I've had that happen to me many times where I've like, well, it's 90% right. Mm. <laughs> um, but that 10% is like is really gnawing in your mind and you know yeah. actually the 10 percent is is the is the correct version you're not right and you have to carry on looking you have to keep going or you have to stop right yeah. and i think that's one of the important things it's it also depends on the event you know an event like the protest in sudan there's a lot of video out there mm-hmm. right there's a lot of video out there there must be you know a good 20 30 pieces of video from from a protest sure and some some pieces of content really are difficult and it's also difficult to ascertain exactly what's happening mm. etc so it's, it's also important to know when to stop and move on to something else there are times also where there's only one piece of video and what you see in the video is so egregious that it is worth the opportunity opportunity cost of spending three four days on that is worth you know worth that price to pay mm-hmm. to actually find out exactly where it happened mm-hmm. um so i think i think it's, it's always balancing out you know the, the the advantages of spending time and, and trusting yourself to not be lazy <laughs> mm. i was wondering if you could talk a little bit about two things the first is when you're looking at all this footage and you're exposed to the, that kind of imagery all the time how do you deal with that trauma and how does that affect the human rights workers and the second element is how does the video footage affect the people who are taking it? Who is submitting that video footage? Which voices are being heard when you're in that hospital filming mm-hmm. a traumatic event that's uh, ongoing? So I was wondering if you could expand on voices in the field a bit. Um, in terms of the, the first part of your uh, first part of that, you know, the 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 risk of traumatization of people doing this work i mean human rights work human rights research human rights advocacy i think has a you know you're looking at the worst that humanity can do to each other 
you know and and it does take its toll and it doesn't have to be for me personally for instance you know it doesn't have to be looking at a, a, a picture equivalent to the alan curdy picture right where a kid has been killed um for me i found you know we're doing a lot of research on the on the coalition airstrikes on, on raqqa i found to be very draining the the act of just looking at destruction of buildings mm -hmm. And that surprised me. I didn't expect that to have such a draining effect on me. Um, so we work a lot, certainly in the DVC with our students. We, we do talk a lot, maybe not enough, but a lot about the risk of vicarious trauma. So being traumatized, even though you've not witnessed the event firsthand, even though you were not there. Uh, because that is a, that is a, a real threat to, to, to a researchers, to a volunteers, mental health. Um, so we talk a lot about resiliency. Um, we talk a lot about building up resiliency, rather than treating mental health as a as a broken leg. And I think we have a history of uh, of, of we have a history, certainly in the human rights movement, of treating mental health as as a broken leg. You know, you're fine, or you're not fine. You know, you you can walk on your leg, or you can't walk on your leg. Um, it kind of feels obvious, but. I think that's a way historically that we've we've thought about mental health, and mm -hmm. I think within the DVC and certainly within my team in Amnesty, in the Crisis Response Team in Amnesty, we're working very hard to overcome that and really think about resiliency. Right? How do you not break your leg in the first place? Mm -hmm. How do you have a muscle that's strong enough that you know when your leg is kicked really hard that it doesn't break? It's not easy. I think the first step is really to acknowledge. The work you're doing and the toll that that can take on you and i think if you're able to do that that helps right so why am i feeling a bit run down today why am i feeling very lethargic why you know i've had a big fight with my boyfriend girlfriend wife husband lover sister whoever um oh yeah but i did spend the day looking at videos from raqqa videos from sudan videos of somebody getting beaten up by the police etc etc there's no right or wrong answer necessary on how to deal with it i think you know when we're dealing with resiliency each individual has to work out what works for them in a healthy space you know is it going for a run is it watching some silly something silly on netflix etc right and we encourage people who work with us to do in terms of the safety of people filming content obviously you know any human rights researcher worth their salt, you know, their their modus operandi should be, you know, to do no harm. Mm -hmm. So we always take great care in in what videos we publish and what videos we make available and and who we show when we're publishing those videos. We'd certainly take a lot more care, for instance, than a, than a news organization because, you know, we really feel that we shouldn't be showing necessary faces all the time. We would blur those out, et cetera, et cetera. We would get informed consent from any anybody we speak to. And I think the same stands for same same stands for videos. You know, we're very, very cautious. We try our hardest to look after the digital security of people. But a lot of the content you see today, actually, it's like I think people have started to understand no, the risk of surveillance. You know, if you're if you are an activist, human rights defender, grassroots human rights defender in Sudan or or in Nicaragua or or wherever, um, I think you're you're starting to take a lot more steps towards digital security. That maybe we do even even here. This is something we talked about before, Matt. Uh, you know, maybe even more so than we do here. Um, and like people share content first on WhatsApp, for instance, they share it within a WhatsApp group, and that automatically anonymizes the content right it makes it a lot harder than if it appears on twitter posted by a diaspora group 
in the US or in, the, or in Canada or wherever, you know, we, it's very hard for us then to find the original source, which mm-hmm. is fine, I think, which is absolutely fine. Uh, as long as then we're very so- on solid ground about, about where we, you know, how, how we verified it and how we use the content. Mm. Yeah. And on the point of um, vicarious trauma, especially in this era where we're constantly blasted with a lot of negative content, a lot of things aren't going as well in the world. And so being connected to the space, surely in and of itself, even if you're dealing with mundane tasks, you know, might expose you to even more than you would on a, on a regular basis. Yeah, I mean, how how I'd respond to that is say is by saying, you know, it's people don't end up working for Amnesty or Human Rights Watch as researchers, as looking to you know grave human rights violations by accident. Mm-hmm. You don't. It's not something you fall into necessarily. It's like mm-hmm. it's a conscious choice to go there because um, you you feel a need to be involved. You feel a need to be connected. And certainly, I I think I, th- I think for myself, I would almost find it harder not to be connected to what's going on in the world. You know, my career has been around being connected to, what, to what's going on in the world. My life has been around that. So if I was suddenly, you know, working, I don't know, for in a different organization where you're not connected to what's going on in the world, I think I would almost find that harder than sure. looking at all the, all, the, all the rubbish that's going on. For sure. That said, it is draining. Mm. It does leave you sometimes with a rather negative impression of what's going on in the world, especially when you're, you know, you're watching these things time and time again to go back to vicarious trauma. I think the difference between somebody who goes into the field sure. and conducts interviews and and somebody who, who who's a distant witness um, is is that we actually we distant witnesses in some some ways see more of what's going on in mm-hmm. different places, right? If you're in the field, it's very hard. Don't get me wrong. It's it's very, very hard and very, very traumatic. But you're only in the field in one place for one particular period. Whereas in my d- line of work, you know, in the, in one week, I can be looking at Sudan, Syria, some torture in Egypt, um, protests in Venezuela, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And you can look at like five to six different situations. You, sure. you know, you skim the surface of all of them, mm-hmm. which can be really draining sometimes. Yeah, yeah, yeah it can be yeah. really, really draining. But again, I go back to the, you know, if we, if I wasn't doing that, I would feel very dissatisfied. Mm-hmm. And and what you have to do is also cling on to the, you know, the small victories that we have. We know when it comes to Myanmar that there was a global response to the ethnic cleansing in Myanmar in 2017. Right. You know, we, there was pressure applied to the Myanmar regime. Has it stopped everything totally? No, but you know, we're trying to. You know, the people, the the leaders, me online, the you know, the commander in chief of the Burmese army. You know, people talking about him. He had he lost his Facebook accounts. You know, mm-hmm. there are steps afoot to try and bring him to justice, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Sure. It's a long road, but there are small victories along that road somewhere. And and digital verification is one of the things that contributes to that because mm-hmm. we can actually show what's happening. We can actually sh- put a video in front of people and say, "Hey, you do know this is from Myanmar. You do know this is a, Rakhai, a Rohingya village in Rakhine State mm-hmm. that was burnt down." We have the video. This is what somebody brought across the border on their mobile phone. Mm-hmm. And we verified exactly where it happened. And those are the little victories you can have. Yeah. The question that I always get when I talk about this to my friends is how are deep fakes going to affect this? How do increasingly sophisticated technologies influence the work that we're doing in digital verification? Deep fakes, synthetic video, synthetic media, media created by algorithm, whatever you want to call it, terrifies the life out of me. I mean, I think it's it's a real risk to what we're doing. It's a real, real scary 
future that's on the horizon when it comes to debates about what is truth and what is knowledge and what really happened in their location. Mm -hmm. It doesn't mean we should stop doing what we're doing. It just means we need to be <laughs> extra cautious mm -hmm. and extra aware of what's going on. And I think there's one element that certainly on Amnesty's side that we should never forget is that for all this verification that we do, we still send people to the field to go and talk to people. And we still talk to experts and consult experts and say, you know, did this really happen? You know, we've got this video of X, Y, Z. Did this really happen? Mm -hmm. Like, we don't know, you know. And then it, the advice on our side, on the, you know, on the, on the crisis response team side, certainly would be then proceed with utmost caution. Sure. You know, we talked about this. There was this video from Cameroon that appeared in July 2017. That was one video of an extrajudicial execution of two women and two children. At this stage, you know, that's not a video that, as far as I know, that's not a video that, that, that is going to be subject to deep fake, right? We're not at mm -hmm. that level of video yet. Mm -hmm. But, you know, even though we spent, you know, our, our team of five people spent three to four days verifying that one video, we still ultimately sent somebody a contact in Cameroon. We sent them to the region where we thought this happened and had that person talk to people locally and say, you know, ever hear of a extrajudicial execution of two women and two children and and you know what that we still fundamentally go and ask people on the ground and we see i see certainly you know in 2010 i was like you know this this open source information user generated content it's a panacea to everything it's like you know newsrooms don't have to send foreign correspondence anymore because they can just use the footage online etc etc the more i work with it the more i know and understand that this is just another foundation for your evidence right and you can use it to back up arguments you can use it to strengthen arguments but it's not something that should be relied upon on its own mm -hmm. and i think you know people talk about building deep fake spotters and things like that i i i don't know i'm, I'm very pessimistic about those being built and those actually working which means even more that kind of the the open source content the, the content online has to be seen as as something that corroborates and strengthens your argument, but it's not the foundation of your argument, mm -hmm. and that's the only way we'll we'll be able to get through a deepfake world. Because you know what happens when there's a video created of a Rohingya village leader saying we must go and burn down all the army army outposts in Rakhine State, and mm -hmm. it's a deepfake. Mm -hmm. You know, we saw it already with Facebook with just the memification of hate speech. Mm. So what happens when that's fake videos? And we have to be increasingly, increasingly careful. And that's where we go again back to the whole media literacy and the importance of media literacy today. Mm -hmm. So speaking of deep fakes, it's clear that there are people who are more apt at manipulating technology, using technology. There are also people who are better at using social media platforms and who gain more clicks or more likes on Twitter platforms, etc. How does that influence whose voices are heard and come to the surface of the discovery work that you're doing when you're gathering material? And how does that ultimately affect the narrative that we're building around human rights? I mean, I, I would take it even back to before then of like who even owns the hardware in certain mm -hmm. places, right? Who has access to, to the mobile phones and who has access to the data and who has access to the, to the Twitter accounts or mm -hmm. the Facebook accounts, et cetera, et cetera. Because that does drive us towards certain narratives, right? It becomes a lot easier to tell the narrative because there's lots of videos of it. There's lots of videos of protests and who are they filmed by? They're filmed by most often men 
uh, who own the mobile phones, who you know have access then to the social media accounts and, and, and uploading them. Um, it's something that's very hard, right? And it comes back to, I think, on, our, on the amnesty side, it's like, what are we researching? What's our research question? And then what are the methodologies we can use to answer that question? And if open source is one of those methodologies, then great. But I think fundamentally, when we're starting the research into an event into a situation, then we have to be asking what are the right what are the right methodologies to answer this answer this question rather than you know okay I really want to use open source content how can I use it to show what's happening in X country because mm -hmm. then we're going to get into a very biased situation mm -hmm. so I'd even go back even further like you know we have to think about who owns the hardware who owns the access to the phones if in a in a society women for instance don't have access to phones what does that mean about if we suddenly give them access to phones, right? If we come in as, you know, human rights, humanitarian organizations and say, okay, we want to make women have access to this, but we're gonna give them phones. Well, that could actually put them in danger because mm -hmm. the society will be like, why have you got a phone? You know, that shouldn't be, that shouldn't be the case. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, so, you know, we even have to go that far back, but certainly in, in, in some countries we're seeing it, or in some situations we're seeing it where, yeah, as you say, you know, certain, people are better online mm -hmm. certain people get hashtags moving and there's always these kind of like campaigns over hashtags yeah. and like who is actually you know showing uh who is actually showing the the better narrative and i think it's something we saw saw a lot in, in myanmar for instance where um you know there's there's there was certain information shared on facebook about the rohingya and then we were seeing a different story when you know mobile phones were coming across the border um but again, the, you know, the fundamental biases of ourselves have to be put into question all the time. You know, I've been looking at videos from Syria and you're like, well, you know, I just assume, well, obviously Assad's a bad guy here. Mm. So anything that's anti-Assad is definitely right. Mm. And that's obviously a very, 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 very dangerous mm -hmm. thing. And you have to stop yourself and ask yourself the question all the time. It's like, if we look at our Raqqa thing, if, we're, if we look at our Raqqa research, you know, we spent a lot of time identifying where airstrikes happened mm -hmm. and now we're in the process of analyzing them is like well what is our question is it that blowing a building up with an airstrike in a conflict situation is bad as a human being i would say it's bad right i mean i'm a, you know fundamentally I'm not saying i'm a pacifist but i'd like i'd rather wars didn't happen right <laughs> uh but a u.s airstrike blowing up a building mm -hmm. might not necessarily be a crime mm. right it could be uh, a mosque that was being used to store weapons by ISIS, and it was a perfectly legitimate target, right? But but because we have the video of the of the building blowing up, and we spent two days trying to verify exactly where that was, we're desperate to use it because we've put all that work in. Mm -hmm. We have to check ourselves and say, what is a human rights violation here, or what is a violation of the law of armed conflict here? Because fundamentally, that is what Amnesty is commenting on, not aren't we amazing we verified this airstrike mm -hmm. so like, how does that feed into our narrative and how does that feed into our discussions mm -hmm. because if we're going to like say you know um airstrikes are bad therefore it's got to go into the report that is obviously feeding into our own biases and mm -hmm. we have to check that all the time which is a very hard thing to do mm -hmm. but you know if amnesty doesn't do it nobody will i've got a penultimate question for both of you and then a final mm -hmm. question as well I'm wondering, in, in all of this work that, that you're both doing, how do you feel about the gamification aspect of it? Because I I can imagine, certainly myself having having worked with this as well, that there is 
there's quite a bit of game over the process of verifying, right? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, we're trained, you know, a colleague of mine put it perfectly. It's like, you know, we're trained to hunt a zebra on the plains or whatever. <laughs> and we catch the zebra and we're like, yes, I've got something to eat. That's great. Right. right. And it's not right. it's, and it's not that dissimilar with what we're doing here. Um, I'd love to you know, hear your thoughts orally, but I, I'll give another example from the work we've done together on Raqqa. I was verifying a video from Raqqa and I was like, hmm, you're spending a good few hours on it. And I was like, found it exactly where it was. I found it on the satellite imagery. So, you know, we can compare publicly available satellite data of a before and after of a scene. I could work out through the, through comparing that satellite data, pretty much the three day window in which that building was, was destroyed. And then I realized it was a school. You know, I, I had this massive high. I found the place. I found the data had happened. And I was like, but that was a school, you know. And that really, like, talking about vicarious trauma, mm -hmm. you know, it, it's not vicarious trauma, but it distressed me. Sure. That I'd sure. been so happy that I'd found where a school was blown up. Understandable, yeah. And I think that's something we need to really be careful about and mm -hmm. check in on ourselves on. You know, the, yeah. the gamic, gamification, I think, helps us do it, right. helps us do the work because we get the little dopamine hit when we found it and it's like mm -hmm. exciting and it's why we do it and it pushes us further. Mm. But sometimes that can also have a negative consequence as well. I don't know what you think. Absolutely, I completely agree with you. And that really struck me when we had our weapons training because we were learning how to identify different weapons and which ones would be uh, considered as a human rights abuse if they were used by the police and which ones were quote unquote more, more legitimate weapons. Sure. And as we were identifying them and learning to differentiate them, I got excited and then felt guilty about being excited because those mm -hmm. weapons are used to kill people and most often in, in the context where we're working, innocent right. civilians. Mm -hmm. So that was a powerful moment in a, in a negative way because after having that hit of, of dopamine, like you said, from, from recognizing the weapon, you realize what that weapon represents. Another element that I find very difficult is what you were saying, looking at the destruction in Raqqa. And most often you'll have identified a place that was destroyed and you'll go back with your time machine in the timeline and look at older satellite imagery and you'll see the building slowly reconstruct mm -hmm. to what it was before. And then you realize that that was a mosque where people prayed or that, like you were saying, that was a school. So I think those are the more difficult moments and that's when you have to sort of take a break and realize what the bigger picture is mm -hmm. yeah. but it's also why we do it again going back to it you know it's like we want to bring light to this sure yeah so you know in some ways the gamification helps as long as you know as, as you say we're, we, conscious, we're yeah. conscious of it we're aware of it and we know mm -hmm. when to stop and look after ourselves yeah. in the moment as well so we instrumentalize the game yeah as opposed to the game becoming an end in itself mm. precisely yeah. i think precisely. it's hard for it to become an end in itself with the kind of teams that we have sure because they're all so grounded in the ultimate objective which is to advance the human rights work that amnesty is doing so i don't think there's ever a moment where we're at the stage where everyone thinks this is a game it's right. very difficult to, <laughs> to reach that stage if you're doing dvc um, so yeah i do i do think yeah. there are moments where where we need to come back down to earth but for the most part the gamification isn't doesn't isn't overwhelming okay well bringing this all to a bit of a close with perhaps an ending that opens the space up a little bit is there really such a thing as a as a human rights field anymore? Because a lot of the things that we're talking about are techniques for establishing fact versus fiction. They're techniques that really ordinary citizens could benefit from as well. And it seems like they're applied as equally in the news world as they are in the human rights world, as they are in the policing world. And so it just occurs to me that this is a much bigger movement 
than just the human rights space. Sure. I mean, so I think we've seen the emergence of something which was calling, you know, the open source investigation field, if you like, which is, you know, I think is a fancy term for people looking things up on the internet, <laughs> um, which is great. And it's important, right? Because it's all out there. Um, but it's all about how what's our what's our goal ultimate goal in using this in this content. So you know, there's news organisations out there that will do stuff that Amnesty won't do, right? right? Because it's not a human rights abuse, and right. I think it's important that um, Amnesty sticks to what it's good at because that's where our value add is. You know, bad things happen, but the bad things that happen aren't necessarily human rights abuses. They're just bad things that happen to people. You know, in conflict, people die. It doesn't mean it's human rights abuse. In, you know, protests, people do bad things and get arrested. It doesn't mean it's a human rights abuse. Mm -hmm. uh, and we have to be really conscious of that. And I think it's it's where the difference is of organizations like Amnesty, Human Rights Watch, that we need to be constantly reminding people citizens but also government government institutions about their human rights obligations sure. and that is our difference so i think i would disagree with your question i think there's an emerging open source information space which is great and a lot of those organizations will look into things which are bad things but aren't human rights abuses uh, and they should be doing that and th but they're different from amnesty and mm -hmm. i think there is still a human rights space there is still a human rights world that 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 is important, um, and it's and I think it's good that the human rights space now is definitely looking at how to use open source information mm. because it's a new source of information that we can use to back up our arguments yeah. uh, again and and then hold people to account. Sort of to bounce off what you were saying, I think it's important to call it a human rights field because otherwise the people who retweet stories or post petitions online become automatically human rights advocates and I don't think that's the case and it's increasingly enticing to become a human rights advocate through your Twitter account but whether or not that's useful is a broader question that you need to ask yourself so I think that the label human rights work continues to be effective in distinguishing people who dedicate themselves to building an entire narrative that's accurate versus people who are contributing a part to the story whether or not that's positive or negative. So if you want to go beyond collectivism and get involved with human rights in the digital age, consider getting involved with open source investigations. There is a lot that you can do for organizations like Amnesty through the Decoders projects, um, but also plenty you can do on your own just in your community, making sure that folks are fact checking and use teach yourself how to use Google Earth to to do geolocation work. And also you could always browse through your Instagram for training and look and try and figure out what time and where people took the photos that they claim they've taken just a fun <laughs> little exercise for you anyway that's all we had for for today thank you so much sam for joining us on the episode thank you sam thank you for having me thank you for tuning in for this episode of declarations the human rights podcast please go on itunes and check us out give us a rating and a review if you like what you're hearing you can find us on all popular podcast platforms, including Anchor FM, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. 